activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a survey evaluation link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the um, link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. I mean, at the um, bottom of the, yeah, the screen. If you have a question and you're viewing online, please enter it into the Q&A chat and we'll ask it at the end of the presentation. It is my pleasure to introduce our three presenters for today. First, we'll have Dr. Um, Addison Paris. He is board certified in infectious disease who joined NGPG back in 2014. He has been an integral part of growing the infectious disease practice and has continued to share his expertise with the committee he serves with. Dr. Paris enjoys traveling, sports, and spending time with family. Our second presenter will be Dr. Uh, Morell, who was born and raised in Dominican Republic. He completed medical school in Dominican Republic in 2005. He completed a few residencies with pathology at University of Florida, sur surgical pathology um, fellowship at Emory University, and a breast pathology fellowship at the University of Flor Florida. Dr. Morell was an assistant professor at University of Florida for four years. He joined Northeast Georgia Medical Center uh, two years ago. And then our third presenter will be Dr. Manapali, who earned her medical degree from the Manipal University Catsborough Medical College in Mangalore, India. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine at Chattanooga and a fellowship in infectious disease at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. She is board certified in infectious disease. Her areas of special interest include general infectious diseases, HIV management, hospital epidemiology, and antibiotic steward. She has been named a fellow by the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the nation's leading infectious diseases professional society. Join me in welcoming our presenters today. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for, for uh, listening and coming to this uh, presentation. And thank you guys for everyone that's uh, online and watching this presentation. We appreciate your time. Um, so let's uh, jump into this uh, presentation this afternoon. I don't have any disclosures. Our objectives today, are we're gonna be uh, reviewing the uh, epidemiology of uh, Clostridioides difficile infections. We'll also touch on um, transmission risk factors and uh, epidemiology. We'll discuss uh, pathogenesis and clinical symptoms of uh, C. difficile infections. And we'll also discuss uh, the treatment management and uh, prevention strategies for uh, C. difficile infections. Uh, so Clostridioides difficile, the uh, causative agent of what we call C. diff, is responsible uh, for uh, antibiotic-associated colitis. This was first identified in the uh, late 1970s after a majority of uh, associated uh, cases of uh, colitis. And the majority of those cases they found at that time was uh, associated with uh, clindamycin use and uh, overuse. Um, and these folks had uh, colonization with clindamycin resistant strains, which increased their risk of C. difficile infections. Um, they also noted during that time that there was uh, increased use of penicillin and cephalosporins, um, which was also uh, implicated in the increased cases of C. difficile colitis that was noted at that time. 
in 2003 to 2006, uh, C. difficile infections were very frequent, severe, and refractory to standard therapy. So we noted at that time that there was this, the emergence of what we call a, a binary NAP1 strain. It's a very virulent strain that produced massive amounts of uh, toxins and, and produced quite a bit of uh, mucosal injury. And this toxin, it was noted to be associated with uh, fluoroquinolone use. Um, the increase in frequency of these outbreaks was also associated with increased fluoroquinolone resistance. Um, CDI was the main cause of GI-associated deaths in the United States from 1999 to 2007. On a positive note, we uh, did have a decrease in the incidence of uh, healthcare-associated infections from 2011 to 2017. And of course, that was in part due to you know, uh, antimicrobial stewardship programs being implemented in hospitals across the country and, and also a better infection control um, practices and surveillance measures. So how is C. difficile uh, transmitted? It's uh, typically through the uh, fecal oral route through the contaminated hands of healthcare workers and also through contaminated uh, environmental surfaces. Um, there can also be person-to-person -person, uh, transmission in the hospitals and long-term care facilities. Um, humans are a reservoir and we can transmit by, by, via colonization or, or having an, an, an actual infection or through contaminated uh, environments. Uh, we do know that C. diff spores can uh, remain on, on surfaces for several months and it serves as a, a, main, a main route for uh, transmission. Uh, studies have suggested that transmission is more likely to occur from patients with C. difficile infections than from patients with asymptomatic colonization. And we'll talk about that uh, later on. So risk factors, as I'm sure you guys are all familiar with, uh, obviously exposure to antimicrobials in the prior two to three months. Exposure to uh, <clears throat> healthcare facilities in the, in, in the prior two to three months. Uh, infections with uh, toxigenic strains of C. diff, such as the uh, NAP1 strain, which is now called uh, ribotype 027. Um, advanced ages, underlying comorbidities, uh, including diabetes and so forth. Uh, immunosuppression and HIV, chemotherapy. Tube feeds and GI surgery because it, al it alters the uh, colonic uh, microbiota and exposure to uh, gastric acid uh, suppression meds such as uh, PPIs. So let's talk about the microbiology here just a bit. So C. diff, it's a uh, gram-positive spore-forming uh, bacilli. Uh, it uh, exists in the spore and vegetative form. Now the spore form typically lives outside of the human body um, and can live on uh, surfaces you know, for, for many months and, 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 and hence transmit uh, infection. So it's very important in the hospital setting and, and outside of the hospital that if patients do have um, uh, C. diff, that it's imperative for them to clean their, their, their common areas, um, including their restrooms, so that they uh, reduce their chance of uh, um, reinfection and, 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 and recurrence. Um, uh, it is an obligate anaerobe, which means it doesn't grow in the presence of uh, oxygen. And it's part of the GI flora in, in, in one to three percent of healthy adults. Um, and it's, uh, it's more prevalent in children uh, less than 12 months um, uh, at a 70 percent clip. Uh, so some strains produce toxins A and B. OK, toxin A is an enterotoxin and toxin B is, very, is cytotoxic, which means that causes massive destruction to the uh, colonic uh, mucosa 
in, in those patients that are at risk and, and, and do succumb to infection. Um, 10 to 30% of clinical isolates uh, don't produce toxins and usually colonize the GI tract. <clears throat> so again, the uh, PCR ribotype 027 strain uh, produces binary toxin, which is not seen in other uh, strains of C. difficile. Uh, the PCR ribotype 027 is resistant to fluoroquinolones in vitro. And as I mentioned earlier, they produce large amounts of toxins uh, A and B um, in vitro when compared to other strains of uh, C. difficile. And it is associated with severe disease, recurrence, lower cure rates, and increased morbidity and mortality. So how do patients develop uh, uh, C. diff? Uh, it's... it's, it's so if you look at the schematic here, you can see when a patient is exposed to the spore, they ingest the spore, it then becomes into the uh, vegetative form. And, and if there is someone who is obviously at increased risk, i.e. they may have been exposed to uh, prior antibiotics, they're on chemotherapy, they're at advanced age, and all of these things will alter the, uh, the colonic mucosa and increase the susceptibility to C. difficile uh, infections. So the vegetative form then enters into the uh, crypts of bili within the, uh, within the colon, and they, they can proliferate and produce uh, toxin A and B, which then uh, cause destruction of the colonic mucosa and, and, and forms these pseudomembranes, which, which uh, our GI colleagues would typically see when they go in and perform a colonoscopy. So on colonoscopy, typically what you'd see here on the... Uh, on the left is a, is, is, is a picture of a uh, normal cecum. And uh, on the right, you'll see some evidence of uh, pseudomembrane uh, formation within the uh, colonic uh, walls. And the bottom slide just shows a, uh, a picture of what uh, C. difficile overgrowth looks like in someone who's been affected. So what are some of the antimicrobials that uh, predispose folks to uh, C. diff? We, we all know from from medical school and thereabouts that, you know, there are many antibiotics that can, that can predispose us to, to C. diff. Um, obviously more commonly, and the ones that have been studied the most are drugs like clindamycin, uh, cephalosporins, fluoroquinolones, ampicillin, uh, and amoxicillin. Some of the less commonly related and uncommon related um, um, uh, uh, antibiotics uh, includes, you know, sulfurs, uh, microlides, carbapenems, uh, aminoglycosides, rifampin, tetracycline, and chloramphenicol. So among patients with uh, C. difficile infections, 96% of these patients receive antibiotics within 14 days of onset. So when you're, um, when you're gathering your history, you know, it's important to ask the patients, you know, if they've been exposed to antibiotics recently within the last 14 days or within the last three months because we know that 100% of patients who have developed C. difficile infections have received antibiotics in the previous three months. So getting a, a, a very good history and physical is, is very important to, to um, establishing the correct diagnosis and coming up with the most appropriate treatment plan for these patients. We also know that 20% 20 of hospitalized patients are, are colonized with C. diff. So if someone comes into the hospital, let's say they have a pneumonia, and, um, you know, after three days of appropriate antibiotics, you know, they develop severe profuse watery diarrhea and you test them for C. diff. These are some of the patients that you see that's coming into the hospital who eventually become colonized 
And after exposure to antibiotics, you, it affects the colonic mucosa, increasing their susceptibility now to developing an active infection. So what are some of the clinical manifestations of, of, of C. difficile that we see? It can range. It can range from anywhere from asymptomatic carriers, i.e. those folks who are colonized, folks with non-severe disease, uh, severe and fulminant colitis, and, and patients with recurrent disease. So the median time between exposure to onset of symptoms is usually two to three days. So again, going back to that example I mentioned before, you have someone that, come, that comes in with with um, a community quiet pneumonia, you start them on Leviquin and, and within two to three days, you know, they start developing some abdominal pain, fevers, um, some profuse watery diarrhea. You know, you should have a high index of suspicion to test these patients for C. difficile because of the onset uh, in, in, in symptoms or i.e. the incubation period. Now the risk of developing uh, C. difficile infections after exposure now ranges from anywhere from five to 10 days to 10 weeks. So with non-severe disease, we define that as watery diarrhea uh, with more than three unformed stools in, uh, in 24 or uh, fewer consecutive hours. And these patients will present with uh, loss of appetite, fever, nausea, abdominal pain, and cramping. Or, and they will also have a WBC count of less than 15,000, a creatinine of uh, less than 1.5. On the other hand, folks with severe disease, uh, they'll have uh, severe diarrhea, um, very um, intractable uh, and, and, and uh, unrelenting abdominal pain, fever, lactic acidosis, uh, elevated serum creatinine, hypotension, and marked uh, leukocytosis. You know, sometimes up to 40,000. Sometimes we can see, I've seen uh, white counts in some patients as high as uh, 75 to 80,000. So it's not uncommon. Okay, and the, and the proposed laboratory criteria for patients with severe C. difficile infections, you typically see a white count, as I mentioned earlier, of more than 15,000, where they can get up to as high as 40 or, or, or greater, and a serum creatinine of, of 1.5, greater than 1.5. Now, these patients are very sick, so they will require your, your utmost attention. You know, if you have these patients, you know, uh, you, know you should have a low threshold of, of, of consulting ID for, for their expertise. So now patients with fulminant colitis, uh, these are guys that on the other end of the, other end of the spectrum, they present uh, quite ill with severe hypotension, progressing to multi-organ failure, ileus with little or no diarrhea, i.e. a dilated atonic colon or toxic megacolon, which I'm sure we've all seen at some point during our career. These folks are very sick and oftentimes require consultation with general surgery, as well as ID for, for, for management of, of, their, of their issues. So typically patients with mega, toxic megacolon, you know, they have the classic presentation on radiograph where they have more than seven, uh, more than seven centimeters diameter of the colon and or 12 centimeters diameter in the cecum. Well, this picture illustrates that, where you can see a massive dilatation of the uh, large bowels. Now, recurrent disease, um, that's typically defined by resolution of treatment following, followed by recurrence of symptoms within two to eight weeks after treatment has been stopped. Okay, a key point. So if someone has had um, C. diff and they're presenting again within two to eight weeks after treatment is stopped, that's recurrent disease. Um, up to 25% of patients experience recurrent C. difficile infection within 30 days of completing treatment. And recurrent disease can be mild, can be severe, or it can be fulminant. 
Risk factors, again, are similar to what we've mentioned before, and that includes advanced age, uh, underlying comorbidities, lack of antibody-mediated response to toxin B, or concurrent use of antibiotics. Uh, recurrent symptoms um, may be due to relapse of infection or reinfection. We do know that the majority of cases are due to relapse rather than infection, regardless of intervals between episodes. So that's a key point for you guys to, to, to if it's one thing that you, you do take home from, from this uh, presentation is that the majority of cases we see are due to relapse. And that could happen for several different reasons, you know, inappropriate treatment, uh, treatment uh, duration was, was abbreviated, um, severe underlying comorbidities, uh, immunosuppression and so forth. So, so please note. Now, asymptomatic carriage, uh, asymptomatic patients uh, do not warrant screening, uh, treatment, or contact precautions. Asymptomatic C. difficile carriage occurs in up to 20% of hospitalized adults. In long-term care facilities, the rates of asymptomatic colonization may approach 50%. Um, so patients may serve as a reservoir for environmental contamination. So hence, again, it's important when we have these patients here that, you know, are, that are on, that do have C. diff, are on contact precautions, it's very imperative and important, and important that, you know, we, we, we uh, don our, you know, our gowns and gloves and, and after each encounter, we wash our hands. So that way we don't spread infections to other patients throughout the hospital, including ourselves and our family. So the host's uh, immune response to C. diff may play a role in determining asymptomatic carriage. You know, there's some, and we'll talk about this later, you know, there's some investigations looking at vaccines um, that play a role in uh, stimulating the uh, humoral uh, immune response and trying to mitigate um, um, uh, C. difficile infection. So we do know if you have a good robust immune response, you know, you have the ability to, to quell this infection. So uh, Dr. Morel is going to touch based on, on testing here shortly, but just a few points that I wanted to mention, that testing should uh, be performed only on diarrheal stool. Oftentimes, you know, we get consulted on patients who, you know, there's a suspicion for C. diff and they, they send a stool off to the, to the microbiology lab and we get a, a call back or reported that the stools are too formed for, for testing. So key point, make sure if the patient is, if you're testing for C. diff, you want to make sure that the patient has diarrheal stools because that it will increase the utility of the test. Okay, testing asymptomatic patients is not indicated and testing of cure is not recommended, obviously. So if you had a patient who've had uh, C. diff, they've completed treatment, they're doing well, um, there's no point in retesting their stool for, uh, or for clearance because with the PCR testing, um, it's very sensitive and it can pick up um, uh, in infection or pick up the disease, even though the patients are completely asymptomatic. So do not retest. So let's uh, switch gears and, and talk a little bit about uh, treatment. Uh, so the tenants of care for these patients are very, uh, very simple and straightforward. Obviously, they're losing uh, quite a bit of fluids um, and electrolytes. So you want to replace those fluids um, and electrolytes and continue to monitor them until, until their electrolytes and, and fluid balance have been achieved. Uh, you'd like to discontinue acid suppression if, if possible, discontinue concomitant uh, antibiotics if at all possible. Sometimes they may not, you may not be able to, to um, discontinue the antibiotics because the patient has severe sepsis, they have a bacteremia. So you need these antibiotics on board, you know, while they're having C. diff. So we'll talk a little bit about some strategies that we can, that we can use 
um, to implement with prevention, either primary or secondary prevention. So the other thing we'd like to do, obviously monitor for clinical worsening and adjust antibiotic therapy as needed. All right, so treatment, we can break it up into um, non-fulminant disease or fulminant disease or severe disease. Okay, so, uh, so someone who has an initial episode um, so non-severe disease, like we mentioned earlier, is someone who has a WBC count of less than 15 and a serum creatinine of less than 1.5. Obviously, severe disease, you have a WBC count greater than or equal to 15,000 and a serum creatinine of 1.5. So with your initial episode in someone with non-fulminant disease, the treatment recommendations, which were updated in 2017 from, 2000, from 2010, and published in the Clinical Infectious Disease um, in 2018, um, indicates that for initial uh, episodes, the phytoxomycin is should be given 200 milligrams orally BID for 10 days, or vancomycin 125 milligrams QID for 10 days. That's been a staple for for many many years. <clears throat> or for patients with non-severe disease, if the alternate agents i.e. vancomycin or phytoxomycin is not available, you can consider use of flagell. Um, but flagell over the over the last 10 years have slowly become out of favor with use of C. diff because of its efficacy and because of its neurotoxicity. Um, so now how do we deal with the first recurrence of C. difficile treatment? Um, so we would implement uh, phytoxomycin 200 milligrams orally um, for 10 days or 200 milligrams uh, BID for five days followed by once every day um, for 20 days. Um, you can also implement the uh, vancomycin tapered or pulse regimen as, as listed below, or you can use vancomycin 125 or 125 milligrams orally QID for 10 days. And I'm sure some of you guys have heard of this agent called Zimplava, which is a benzotoximab. That's a monoclonal antibody that targets, that targets toxin A and B. So this has shown to be very effective in, in, in reducing um, uh, the severity um, and uh, frequency of patients who have recurrent disease. So you would administer that dose at 10 milligrams per kilograms IV times one um, uh, alongside some of the agents listed above. So this is an adjunctive agent. I believe we do carry this here, but it's, um, it's uh, used solely for the outpatient uh, uh, purposes. But if you guys think that, you know, this patient, you have a patient that's ill that may benefit from this medication, do not hesitate to reach us, to reach out to us. We can probably, um, if, the, if, if there is an indication for it, we can probably um, get it uh, hopefully approved for inpatient use. Okay, so moving on, patients who have had second or subsequent recurrence. Again, similar to uh, first recurrence, we would use uh, phytomaxin, phytoxomycin, 200 milligrams orally BID for 10 days, or 200 milligrams orally BID for five days, followed by once every day for 20 days. Again, we, here we would uh, deploy the uh, tapered or pulse regimen. Um, and uh, what's different in, 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 in this, um, uh, in your second or third recurrence, you can use vancomycin followed by rifaximin at a dose of uh, 125 milligrams orally, four times a day for 10 days, followed by rifaximin, 400 milligrams uh, TID for 20 days. Again, here you can use um, Zimplava 
as an adjunctive agent to help uh, treat these patients with uh, recurrent infection. Again, with uh, second or subsequent reoccurrence, uh, there is a role now for, for fecal uh, microbiota transplantation, okay? So, so who would get these, um, who would get referred for FMT or who would uh, be indicated for FMT? So it would be patients who've had received appropriate treatment for at least three episodes. So which basically means an initial episode and two recurrence or patients who present with four or more episodes of, of C. diff, okay? So obviously in some places, you know, there may not be the availability to perform FMT, but uh, in this facility, we do have that ability. We're fortunate in this facility to have, to have this ability. And oftentimes, you know, when patients who don't respond well medically, we do refer them to um, FMT and we've had some great success doing so. So let's switch gears and talk about fulminant disease. Now, these folks are very ill. They present with hypertension or shock, ileus, or a toxic megacolon. In the absence of an ileus, you would want to use uh, enteric vancomycin plus flagellin, those patients. So you'd want to use a higher dose of vancomycin, 500 milligrams orally um, via NG tube, um, QID alongside flagell 500 milligrams IVQ eight hours. If there's an ileus present, obviously those drugs listed above may not help, may not be effective. So in, in certain situations like that, you know, um, if possible and if, if available to you, you might want to consider uh, FMT or use of uh, rectal vancomycin as an enema, retained enema, retention enema, and that should be repeated every six hours. So I mentioned earlier about uh, prevention strategies. Um, the data on prevention strategies is not really not really that great, um, but some of the basic things that we can do is obviously minimize or limiting um, antibiotic use or even inappropriate antibiotic use, avoid gastric suppression where possible, um, and 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 there have been some some cases again the, the data is limited where where someone who is at risk for developing C diff uh, can be placed on oral vancomycin, um, 125 milligrams uh, QID. Um, and again, I talked briefly about vaccination and that's under investigation. As, as, as it relates to secondary prevention, i.e. that means patients who've, uh, who've had uh, C. diff and are um, uh, at risk of, of acquiring or um, having another episode of C. diff. So again, the data is, conflicting in these patients, but typically what we do is what I have done in my practice. If someone has had C. diff before, um, they're recently completed treatment um, within the last two to three months, and they need to be on a long-term antibiotics. Um, we would then, I would then use vancomycin, 125 milligrams orally QID for the duration of their treatment, followed by a tail therapy of one week after completion of the treatment. So for example, if someone you're treating someone with uh, osteomyelitis and they require six weeks of IV, let's say, you know, cefepime or whatever, or any other broad spectrum agent, you know, you would use um, uh, oral vancomycin alongside that treatment and, 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 ta and complete a tail treatment one week after they've completed their course of antibiotics. So that's something that I have tried in my practice and I've seen really good results with, with that, secondary prevention. But again, the data on that is 
is is not great. Um, it's limited. There is there is some data that shows that it does work, and other data that shows that it doesn't. But in my experience, I've seen some success with doing that. And I think that's all we have, Dr. Morell. <clears throat> Hello. It's hard to follow up on that one. That was great. Um, so my name is Dr. Morel. I'm Morel. Uh, as previously mentioned, I'm from the Dominican Republic. Uh, I'm in charge of the uh, micro lab. And since a lot of the, obviously no disclosures, uh, a lot of the things that I wanted to speak of uh, have already been mentioned. Um, I would like to take that, borrow that time and talk a little bit about what the role of the lab in this disease is. And in pretty much most situations that uh, you're gonna encounter. Um, the laboratory encompasses more than micro, more than CBCs, um, more than chemistry for urine. It's a very broad uh, component of the hospital that it's involved in pretty much everything uh, from biopsies to blood transfusions to cedificil treatment. Um, <clears throat> it is really important that since there's a lot of residents who's gonna watch this, you keep a close relationship with your lab. If you do not understand a test, let me see what's showing. If you're not understanding a test that was performed, it is good to give a call. It is important that since you're here right now to know how we, how we process certain specimens and what do the reports mean? Once you move to another facility, another job, a clinic, also understand what do you have available to you and what those tests represent. It is imperative for the health of your patient and their outcome that you know what exactly a test is reporting. In the case of Clostridioides difficile, they call it the difficult, difficile comes from Latin difficult. Um, it is, as Dr. Perez mentioned a lot, clinical judgment, clinical presentation is vital, but also is understanding what are we in the lab reporting to you. Um, currently in our institution, we're using PCR. Uh, we have the gene expert system, which automates an interest sample purification, nucleic acid and amplification, and the detection of the tar target sequence um, to give you a diagnosis. As with every PCR, they are extremely sensitive. Uh, all you need is to have the gene there and the, the test is gonna give you a positive. So that is why it's really important to know what sample you're sending. If the patient does not have symptoms and you send a sample, you may get a positive sample and you should not treat the patient based on only a pos positive sample if there's no clinical um, suspicion for, for the disease. So 
one of the reasons that it is so important to not set form stools is this. One is to keep in line with the, with the diagnosis is a diarrhea. Uh, so if the patient is forming solid stools, hard solid stools, even soft-ish stools, we are gonna reject it because it should not, um, it should not uh, test for that. Also, the, the, the machines that we are using do not accept form stools. So the, the basic, um, the most important thing that you have to remember is that the sample has to be very loose or liquid. Um, there are exceptions to this, uh, except for example, Dr. Paris mentioned, if the patient has ileus, the, the stools may be a little bit more formed, uh, but, but again, your clinical judgment has have to be um, used in order to avoid uh, misdiagnosis. So we would only perform a test every seven days um, in order to, uh, you know, not reject your, your samples. Um, when you collect the sample, make sure that the container is um, clean. And we would recommend to be stored two to eight degrees Celsius. In the hospital, in this building, um, this is not such a big issue. The lab is very close, so the sample is going to get there. But someday you may go work in a clinic or a location that uh, you don't have access to quick delivery to the, to the lab. So you have to ensure that, and you know the policies of that institution, make sure that the sample gets viable. Um, a unviable sample will give you the wrong diagnosis. Okay, so it can be kept at room temperature 20, uh, 20 to 30 degrees up to 24 hours, but the faster you go, and this is for PCR alone. If you're gonna test toxin, it cannot go uh, more than 24 hours and no frozen samples, okay? So within soon, coming soon as a movie, um, a few months, uh, we're gonna have an antigen, te antigen testing um, in-house, and we'll be able to help you with more speed and accuracy on your testing. So we're gonna be using a rapid membrane enzyme, enzyme uh, assay uh, that will detect both the toxins and the uh, glutamate dehydrogenase antigen. Um, it is used as a screen um, and not a confirmation of diagnosis. It is important, again, as I mentioned earlier, to know what are we testing? What, when, when you get that report, report back saying positive, what is it positive for? Um, just to give you an example uh, of what understanding a test is, if you have a patient with a large mass in the neck and you send the patient for an FNA and the diagnosis comes back as uh, necrotic acellular tissue, does that mean that the patient has no malignancy? No, it just means that in that sample, there was only necrotic tissue. That does not mean that the patient, you have to use your, your clinical knowledge and judgment to decide, okay, I'm gonna do a rebiopsy. What other biopsy is better to um, get the diagnosis correctly and treat the patient so they can well, so this is going to be a screening test. Once it is, um, it comes about as 
um, I'll, I'll show it later, um, negative, we were gonna reflex it to PCR, okay? It is quicker, but less sensitive. Uh, if you read the, the, the literature by this test, they claim that it is as good as PCR. It's not true, um, but it, it will help you make the diagnosis faster. So this is more or less the algorithm that we're gonna follow. Do I have a mouse here? Okay, you guys can see it. So we're gonna take this, uh, I cannot see the mouse here. Okay. You're gonna take the, the sample and if it turns out to negative, you're done. No, for, no further, because we're gonna be testing the toxin, which is the one that causes the disease. Remember, if you do a PCR and it gives you a positive, it is only telling you that the microorganism is there. It's not telling you if it's hurting you. It can just be there chilling, you know? Um, we are not horrible people all the time. We are horrible people some of the times, but most of the time we're nice, nice people. These organisms can be just there uh, and not causing any trouble, but sometimes they do. And how do we know when they're producing the toxins? So if, okay. So if the toxin is negative, you're done. If it is positive, you're done, it's positive. Now, if it is positive for the antigen and negative for the toxin, we're gonna reflex it to PCR, okay? Um, and you're gonna get a report. Uh, the collection uh, for these samples, um, we're gonna come up with information for, for all of you. So it is clearly what to do, what are the transport, what are the temperatures, how fast, et cetera. We still don't have, we're working on validation, uh, but hopefully we'll have this soon. Uh, how they say in the movies, next summer. So if anyone have questions, Dr. Manipal. Thank you, Dr. Paris. Thank you, Dr. Moral. I think you guys will stop taking my phone calls. Every time I call, I kind of rub them in for a presentation. <laughs> so my, um, I have a few slides, but they've covered the meat of the presentation. I think the of the monoclonal antibody, you want to give it while the patient is on the tapering doses. So coordinate with ID, ID pharmacy to schedule the patient in the outpatient infusion. We've had good experience using that in those patients. The other one that's also coming soon, like Dr. Morel said, is Ribayota. I hope I'm spelling it right. It's the first FDA approved fecal transplant. It's an enema. It'll be done in outpatient setting, trying to get that in our ID outpatient office. So hopefully that will be available soon too. So that's an alternative to the fecal transplant because open bio is going out of um, business. So we don't have many um, other options available. So Ribota will be um, an option for us. So I'll focus on infection control and antibiotic stewardship. And I'm looking at the time. So I will um, try to skip through some slides. I think the most important thing, as soon as you suspect a patient may have C. diff, put them in isolation. And while the test result is pending, it's contact precautions, gown and gloves, and wash your hands, especially uh, use soap and water because the spores cannot be killed with alcohol sanitizer. So you need to use soap and water to really wash those spores off your hands. 
And CDC is the, oh, sorry, uh, CDC requires, CDC and HSN requires us to report CDF uh, rates for health systems and it's public available data. So what is reported is the test result at this point. Some changes probably coming soon that may have other, in, other uh, aspects to it. But in short, this is here. So if, you, if a patient is coming in with diarrhea, try to get the test done within the first three days. If we wait three days or longer, we own that, which means the patient got it under our watch and that will be reported as a hospital acquired C. difficile infection. And when we are compared to other health systems, if you see the red here, that means we're not doing good compared to other health systems uh, of similar type. So this data again is um, shared at several meetings and then a publicly available data as well. And this is part of several regulatory agencies rating systems for the hospital like LeapFrog, QHIP. And if you look at our CDF rates across the years from 2018 to, we thought 42 in 2018 was a lot. But now if you see uh, last year, it was 132 hospital. These are healthcare associated. We gave this to the patients. They didn't come in with this. And year to date, we're already at 70. So we have a lot of opportunity to do well, not just, there's multi, uh, multiple things, isolation precautions, hand washing, antibiotic use, environmental disinfection. And as Dr. Paris and Dr. Morel said, patients can be colonized and may not have symptoms but can still spread. And it's already covered, but the PCR test is only detecting the genes that produce the toxin, not the toxin production. So hopefully the new test that we get will help us to actually improve the specificity because PCR is too sensitive, but not as specific. Because if you look at the studies, actually depending on which study you are looking at, 40, 50% of patients who tested positive for PCR uh, but didn't have symptoms or tested negative for the toxin. Again, other studies showing the same. So this has already been covered. Um, I will skip through the slides. And this is the diarrhea decision tree that we have here approved by the Infection Prevention Committee. So if a patient is coming in with diarrhea, test right away, put the patient in isolation pending the test. If it's day four or beyond, make sure before you order C. diff test, because currently we still have only PCR tests, make sure there's no other explanation for the loose tools. It's other medications, laxatives, tube feeds, um, and stop them and reassess in 24, 48 hours. There's some hospitals where it's a hard stop. They will not run a C. diff test unless they're off laxatives for 48 hours. We do not have that hard stop yet, but that's something that has been considered as well. Um, and then um, if we, the diarrhea persists, then test. So PCR cannot be used as, oh yeah, I have very low suspicion, let's just get it because you may be detecting colonization. We have had patients with inflammatory bowel disease where the test was ordered and it can actually misdirect us when the reason for their symptoms could be something else. And we have these questions also in the CDF test um, for heart stop to pause and think if we really need the PCR test or not. This has been covered. This also has been covered. And the one thing, I'm sure we all will wash our hands if this is what we're seeing, but we don't. And basic hand hygiene is so important in, spread, in preventing the spread of the germs. It is so important because when we're talking about Canada RS cases that we have recently identified or other MDROs, and I'm pausing at this slide because our hand hygiene compliance rate is so low that we can do better. We can do better. It's such a basic thing to keep our patients safer, 
us safer and also our families safer because we're also taking these germs back to our families, to other patients, our colleagues. And it's not just the patient contact, it's also the environment. There's so many studies that have shown that ultrasound machines, pulse socks, blood pressure cuffs, stethoscopes, I don't know how many of us wash or wipe our stethoscopes between patients. All of these have been flashlights, uh, uh, pocket sanitizers. Uh, all of these have been shown to actually be the vectors to transmit these bugs. And um, commodes, of course, if they have not cleaned, they've been uh, played a role in outbreaks and um, rectal thermometers, if we are uh, cleaning and using them between patients. And um, so equipment, instruments, um, there's, there's so many studies that have shown that a patient who is admitted after a CDF patient leaves, that patient, the next patient coming in the room is at high risk of getting CDF just because the stores, are, the spores are still there in the environment there. And again, depending on which study you're looking at, um, in one study, they said that 11%, 20% of uh, risk for the next patient coming in. And um, studies have shown that 49% of rooms occupied by symptomatic patients with CDF were contaminated and 29% of rooms in patients who are colonized. So extremely environmental disinfection with bleach and UV light is very, very important. We already talked about this. So I'm going to skip through that. So when we talk about bleach, we don't use bleach to clean the floors. So the spores can still persist on the floors. So there's studies that have shown that our shoe soles actually can carry the spores to long distances. And so again, um, very, very important that we're washing our hands, we're cleaning our floors and wearing the right PPE. And this is an example I have shared actually in several um, meetings, but I wanted to add that slide here. This is such a common scenario. Patient is admitted for CHF. Nothing suggestive of an infection. A UA is obtained because it's part of every order set in the ED and it's positive for ESBL E. coli. And patient has a Foley that's placed for accurate measurements of output. And then they repeat the urine again, a um, couple of days after admission. Again, patient has no symptoms. It still, of course, is growing the ESBL E. coli because now it's sticking to the Foley. Now the provider decides to start the patient on Invans because it's a drug resistant bacteria. Then they remove the Foley after a few days. Then they order another UA with reflux culture. Again, patient has no symptoms and patient still has E. coli, ESPL, because and then IV advance is still continued. And IV advance gets stopped after patient gets diarrhea and is positive for CDF. And this is such a common scenario that we see here that we can change how we practice. Do not order cultures if they are not needed. Urine is not sterile, especially in the presence of a catheter. And antimicrobial stewardship and CDF sale. So what happens when we take antibiotics is if you look at the richness of our microbiome diversity, that's what protects us. That's what keeps our gut healthy. And when we take antibiotics, that diversity is lost. The number of species in our gut, in our microbiome that, that keep it healthy, we lose that. And depending on how long you take antibiotics, what combination of antibiotics you take, the I mean, the damage could be severe and it could take months to years for that to recover again, to get back to the same richness in the microbiome after we stop the antibiotic use. 
And 70 to 80%, and in some studies, 90% of antibiotic misuse actually happens in the outpatient setting, not uh, in the inpatient setting. So there's a, just a lot of opportunity in the outpatient to reduce unnecessary antibiotic use. And again, study after study has shown that implementing good antimicrobial stewardship measures actually reduce rates of C. diff in healthcare institutions. Again, I can go on and on. Here, um, they actually had a stewardship uh, intervention both in the community and the hospitals where they reduced the use of the 4C antibiotics, that's the ciprofloxacin, clindamycin, amoxiclav, cephalosporins, and they saw a reduced C. both in the hospital and also in the community. And this is a nice one-page fact sheet if you want to share it with patients, colleagues, that includes all the information that we have actually covered today that talks about the risk of recurrence, because I don't think we have one good antibiotic that is active against sports now. So when you actually give the antimicrobials to patients with C. diff infection, it's the vegetative form that they're active against the most. The spores still stay in the gut, lead to recurrence, especially in high-risk patients. The spores still stay in the environment and they keep infecting others um, who get exposed to that. So C. diff prevention, of course, antimicrobial stewardship to keep the gut healthy, hand hygiene, um, soap and water, and isolation precautions. And in our hospital, we recommend that the patient stay in isolation for the duration of the hospital stay. But if the hospital stay is prolonged, but the symptoms have resolved, which is what the guidelines say, reach out to infection control. Do not stop isolation without discussing with infection control. And environmental disinfection with bleach and UV light. And again, education to our patients and family when they're going home, when they're having symptoms, but you're discharging them, make sure you tell them to clean um, the patient's um, area, patient room, the bathroom, come out with bleach, wash hands, do not share the bathroom while the patient is still having the symptoms. So make sure you're giving those instructions to the patient and the family members. And that's all I have. Thank you. Any questions to any of us? Yes, we have one question here. Thanks. I, thanks for the uh, great talk. Always good to have lunch with that. Um, just a, a couple of years back, I saw a great study where people used a combination of Vanco or Rifaximin along with kefir, like the, um, it, it's like a yogurt-like drink, but it's really high concentrations. And I know we don't have that much good data about using probiotics. It was never, it was never repeated that I know of, but it had cure rates similar to fecal microbiota transplants. And I've done it three times myself on people with recurrent C. diff and it worked. Have, have you ever seen anybody use anything like that? Like, um, uh, you know, trying to replete the microbiota without using feces from somebody else? So I think we just don't have the evidence. It's not recommended by guidelines uh, to use probiotics. I'm an advocate of that, but um, I'm an advocate for probiotics, but we do not have enough evidence to recommend them and guidelines do not endorse that as well. And also with probiotic powders, we have to be very careful because actually we have had patients end up with central line infections, line infections because of those probiotic powders if we don't wash hands properly after using them. But um, in, in years ago, we actually tried to implement a process here where any patient who is started on antibiotic, 
we have them get started as part of their meal with the yogurt. Uh, it didn't go anywhere because there was no evidence to support it. But especially with guidelines not endorsing, um, that's why we did not add it as part of our presentation. Do you have anything to? I mean, with, with, some, of my, uh, with, with some of my patients, um, That's a great question, Marty. <laughs> but again, there's no data to, to, to support, you know, using that alongside, you know, standard recommended uh, treatments. But in some of my patients, um, after they've completed a course of, of CD, uh, completed an appropriate course of treatment, depending on their uh, stage of disease, whether it be for a primary, secondary or, or recurrent disease, I would usually put them on, um, if they're able to tolerate and if they're not immunosuppressed, um, um, I would put them on some probiotics. And the rationale for that is Dr. Dr. Manapali touched on it because it can take a very long time to repopulate the gut with that microbiome that has been lost. So again, I do that not so much to help prevent C. diff or, re, or, or, or prevent recurrence, but to help the patient repopulate the biome. Um, but Dr. Manapali mentioned, and I've seen this before, and, and it's also been reported that, you know, there's patients who've developed um, saccharomyces, sacro, uh, what's the word? Saccharomyces, right? Bouillardi, bloodstream infections, or also lactobacillus infections from, from exposed, from, from being on these agents for a long time, especially in the right setting if they're immunosuppressed. You know, if their gut microbiota is not um, is compromised, and also central line infections. Yeah, so we've seen I've seen maybe one or two cases of that here in uh, in my career. Hopefully, we'll get some evidence at some point. I mean, it's also a cultural thing. I've known it since childhood. We cannot end a meal without eating yogurt, and especially if you actually are on antibiotics, you double up the dose. That's what my grandmother said. But I don't know when we'll find evidence for that. Right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? I don't see any online. We have one over here. Oh, wait, Dr. Manapala, you have a question. Hi, uh, great talk overall. Enjoyed it. Um, I'm wondering why FMT is not, I mean, there's a great data on the FMT itself. I know there's a long-term safety issues there with that, but why FMT is not recommended for like when there's a first uh, recurrence happen? Why it's only for the recurrent cases? Why not for the, when it happened first time itself with the CDF? Hopefully that will also change, especially now with the Ribeota being approved also, because that will be less invasive than the FMT. Um, but at this point, I think given that fridaxomycin, one of the things uh, why it has um, been upgraded to the first line is because it preserves the microbiota to some extent and also prevents recurrences. So um, as I, I think that's a great point. I totally, completely support that, but um, I think it's going to be a matter of time as we get this less invasive before they upgraded to the first line after first, first recurrence going to do the fecal microbiota. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much.